You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Human Circus. Quote, the sea of India and China, in whose depths are pearls and ambergris, in whose rocky isles are gems and mines of gold, in the mouths of whose beasts is ivory, in whose forests grow ebony, sapanwood, rattans, and trees that bear aloewood, camphor, nutmeg, cloves, and all manner of fragrant and aromatic spices, whose birds are parrots and peacocks, and the creeping things of whose earth are civet cats and musk gazelles, and all the rest that no one could enumerate, so numerous are its blessings. End quote. In 1998, just off the coast of Balatung Island, in the Java Sea, local sea cucumber divers made an unexpected discovery. A shipwreck, wonderfully preserved in the seabed sediment, about three kilometers from shore. After a somewhat controversial recovery process, the fisherman's find would turn out to be a 9th century dhow. Measuring 58 feet in length, its planks lashed together with coconut fibers. It was just the kind of boat that Marco Polo would describe with some alarm centuries later, and that our source today would mention in a much calmer tone. It was just the kind of boat that would sail to Guangzhou, China, and return packed with trading goods. And indeed, this particular boat would not disappoint. The Dao, which appears to have been blown off course while making its return journey from Tang, China, would very helpfully hold a mirror inscribed with the Chinese date equivalent to 759. It would hold coins of a style that were minted from 758 to 845, and a bowl on which, in translation, could still be read the words, The Sixteenth Day of the seventh month, in the second year of the Baoli era, a reference to the reign of the Emperor Jingzong, and within it, the year 826. On board were items one might expect a merchant vessel to have, things such as scales, measuring spoons, and sewing needles to see to the sails. But the Dao also still held some 60,000 artifacts that speak to a rich exchange of goods across the sea. The Dao was carrying ceramics, gold, and silver. There were bronze mirrors, a few of them antiques, even at the time of sailing. There were thousands of glazed stoneware items from the Changsha kilns, 55,000 bowls alone. There were green splash ceramics from Gongxian, including a spectacular ewer with a dragon head stopper. There were celadon wares to be used in the preparation and serving of tea, and small silver boxes for storing medicine, incense, and cosmetics. There were blue and white porcelain pieces produced in China, but featuring Persian designs. 
All in all, it was a glimpse of the healthy ocean trade along a maritime leg of the Silk Roads. And it was also an example of the kind of commerce to be found in our source today. Hello and welcome. My name is Devon, and this is Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast that covers medieval history via the travelers that wound their way through it. And I'll just take this moment at the outset to thank you for listening, and also to point you in the direction of my Patreon. Putting this podcast together requires really a grotesque amount of time and effort. And audio editing aside, I do enjoy all of it, but it's also nice to get paid for that work. So, if you are enjoying the podcast, and it is an option for you, and I do fully appreciate that sometimes it just isn't, then please do have a look at patreon.com forward slash human circus, or find it through my website, which is humancircuspodcast.com. I'd also like to take this time to thank my newest Patreon supporter, so thank you David, very much. And now, let's get to the story. To a new story, and it will be a single episode one today, not the start of a new series. I'll start with a beginning. I'll start with a 10th century writer's beginning, in which he declares his purpose and his opinion. Quote, I have examined this foregoing book, having been commanded to look carefully through it, and to verify the information I find in it about the affairs of the sea, and about its kings, and their various circumstances, and to compare this information with other reports passed down about these kings, known to myself, but not appearing in the book. I found the date of the book to be the year 852, a time when maritime business still ran on an even keel on account of all the toing and froing overseas by merchants from Iraq. I also found that everything recounted in the first book follows a truthful and voracious line. End quote. The writer of the quoted passage was one Abu Zaid al-Hassan al-Sarafi. The occasion, a 10th century response to a 9th century account of India, China, and travel to those lands. The 9th century piece being that foregoing book we just heard about. Taken together, Abu Zaid's edition, along with the 9th century writing, formed a useful source for many later texts. Taken together, they'll be the source and topic of today's episode. Let's take a look at what we're working with. What we have is a piece of 9th and 10th century Arabic travel writing, published together in English as Accounts of China and India, and translated by Tim McIntosh Smith. And it is really two pieces, two books, two parts, two authors. But the issue of who those authors are is not a settled one. Book two is clear enough. As mentioned a moment ago, that was a man named Abu Zaid al-Hassan al-Sarafi. But book one, though, that's a little less easy to be sure of. To start with, when we look at the initial pages of the only known surviving manuscript, that part where we might expect to find this kind of information. We find them missing, and any name with them. Abu Zaid himself may not have known he wrote that first book. Maybe it was Suleiman the Merchant. He is certainly a source for some of Book One, and he would later be credited as its author by the 10th century Ibn al-Faqih. But as to whether he actually was the author, that's still an open question. But what if the part we do know? What of this Abu Zaid, 
the man who examined the earlier work and wrote a kind of response in addition to it. To start with, we know that the Al-Sarafi part of his name would indicate his connection to the port city of Saraf. That situates him on the Iranian coast of the Gulf, and in his time, at the vital gateway to the Indian Ocean. Saraf may be only a minor village now, but to quote Macintosh Smith, that village crouches on the ruins of the palaces of rich ship owners and traders, merchant princes of the monsoon, who dined off the finest Chinese porcelain, and whose wealth grew even greater through that climactic ninth century. Of Abu Zaid, we also know that the historian al-Masudi, sometimes rather unnecessarily called the Herodotus of the Arabs, met him in Basra. He said Abu Zaid had moved there around 915 and was a very educated person, a man of discrimination and discernment. He might have even thought him discriminating enough to borrow material from him for his own work, his book Meadows of Gold and Mines of Gems. Or maybe the borrowing went the other way, and it was al-Masudi who fed Abu Zaid with tales of faraway lands rather than the other way around. In any case, neither Abu Zaid nor that 9th century predecessor, Suleiman or otherwise, were first-hand observers of all they recorded. We do see a little of that, a little, I saw and it was so, but they were, more generally, aggregators of information, collectors of eyewitness accounts, gleaned from a circle of informants. They took in the reports of merchants who traveled to China, to India, and to elsewhere. They accepted some stories and rejected others. In that quote I read a moment ago from Abu Zaid on the accuracy of the earlier work, he ends it by saying he's found it all to be true, but I cut him off a little there. The passage continues to note the only exception, the report in the first book about the Chinese offering food to their dead, and then believing the person has eaten it when it's missing in the morning. Of this, he says, quote, This tale had already reached our ears, but we did not know if it was true, until someone we trusted as an informant arrived from those parts. When we asked him about the story, he dismissed it as untrue and added, The allegation is just as baseless as that of the idolaters who claim that their idols spoke to them. The odd moment of writer as personal witness aside, the whole thing is dependent on the word of such trusted informants. Together, these merchants and their compilers from the 9th and 10th centuries provide a picture of a world one in which Al-Mansur, the caliphal builder of Baghdad, could have looked out at the river and proclaimed, Here is the Tigris, and nothing bars the way between it and China. One in which the Tang dynasty scholar and geographer Jia Dan had already described the waterways all the way up and into the Gulf before dying in 805. It was a profoundly interconnected world in which all kinds of goods were carried across the oceans from Tibetan musk to elephant tusks. It was, in short, a world in which people moved, the ninth and 10th centuries being no more a time that they were fixed to their place of birth than the 12th or 13th. The picture of the world this text provides is not a neat one, what with its two compilers, its multitude of sources and storytellers. Indeed, it's not so much one picture as it is two, the second, as Macintosh Smith puts it, haunted by the knowledge that the good old days were over. 
but we'll get to that in a little bit. For now, let's look at what these pictures show us. The book shows us oceans where whirlwinds sometimes whip up, swallowing entire ships and spitting out boulders, boats, and giant fish. They show us snippets of eastern Africa, of what are called the Zanj in sources such as this, a people with warriors known as the Pierced Ones, their tireless preachers and animal skins, their excellent leopards for export. The books show us cockfighting, cloves, and cannibals, and much, much more. Let's start with the seas themselves. We don't, as I said, know how the first book begins, but as the surviving pages pick up, we're into the waters. We're hearing about whales, how they rise up like a sail, how their spouts are like lighthouses, and how sailors on the Arabian Sea bang wooden clappers together for fear that one of them will blunder into their ship and capsize it. There are fish that will sometimes enter through the ear of an especially greedy whale and kill it. There are other fish with the faces of men that go flying over the water. And into these waters go the merchants' vessels. Boats leave from Basra at the north of the Persian Gulf. They take their goods down south to Saraf, that city indicated in Abu Zaid's name. There, the larger ships needed for the China trade are able to enter the port and receive the transferred cargo. Those ships proceed on, taking on fresh water at Muscat, along with sheep and goats, taking some risk in traversing the rocks of Oman. With a good wind, they reach the southern tip of India in a month, and there again they take on water from the wells, may offload goods such as coral or Egyptian emeralds, and they pay customs duties. They pay up to a thousand dirhams for ships carrying on to China, the concept of paying to move goods and people through a place being rather an older one than many might think. From India, the ships enter the Sea of Harkand, otherwise known as the Bay of Bengal. In that sea, they pass islands, as many as 1,900 of them, it is said, largely ruled by women and populated by skilled workers of cloth and wood. Builders of ships and houses, people who use cowries as currency, and who gather coconuts and collect ambergris in great quantities. Ambergris, which is wrongly reported to grow on the seabed, and then float up in bad weather. One particular island is picked out in the text, one that goes by the name of Sarandib, the root word of the English serendipity. Sri Lanka, as the place is known to us, was rich in aloe wood, gold, and gems, the waters beneath it in pearls, the mountaintop above it crowned with the footprints of Adam, his first step having been there, his second into the sea. On another island, a group of sailors are said to have gone ashore, to have lit fires there, and to have found, much to their delight, that molten silver began to bleed from the ground. They carried off as much as they could, thinking themselves immediately wealthy. But in stormy seas, they were soon forced to throw all of it overboard. The writer notes that, despite several expeditions going out to relocate that particular island, it has, strangely enough, never been found. The sea, he says, is full of such stories, of forbidden islands that are forever sought, and without much success. Throughout the text, there is an effort to separate it from these fanciful tales of sailors. The ship's next destination is Calabar on the Malay Peninsula, 
one month journey if all goes well, and then for ten days each on to Tayuma, and then Kandaranj. Both are noted for the sweet water of their wells, and the latter also for the fugitive thieves and formerly enslaved escapees that take refuge on its mountain. Another ten days, and Samph is reached on what is now the coast of Vietnam, and from there the destination is near, an island stop or two before reaching Zhujiang, the Pearl River, and on it the city Abu Zaid knew as Kanfu, the one you more likely know as Guangzhou, a ninth-century hub of traffic and trade, with some difficulties in its past and in its future. But again, we'll get to that later. Regarding the seas, Abu Zaid notes one of the discoveries of his age, the quote, previously unsuspected fact that the ocean onto which the Sea of China and India opens is connected to the Mediterranean Sea. News has been heard in his time of sewn planks from ships used in the Indian Ocean trade being found in the Mediterranean. The ships had broken up, their crew lost, and then, he suggests, those planks must have been driven north around China and around the back of the lands of the Turks and the Khazars into the Caspian Sea, and from there through the Bosphorus and into the Mediterranean. It's worth noting that Abu Zayd's contemporary, al-Masudi, knew very well that this was incorrect, that the sewn planks must have taken another route, and that the Caspian Sea was not one of the connecting pieces. But it's also worth noting that as late as the 13th century, Friar William, on his journey to see the Mongol Khan, would remark that contrary to what was passed down from Isidore of Sevilla, the Caspian Sea nowhere touched the ocean and was entirely landlocked. So, Abu Zaid, raising an interesting point about the ocean's interconnectivity, was hardly alone in his misconception as to the details. And there were other uncertainties, too. In one passage of the first book that includes an island of rulerless cannibals, fish that climbed into trees to drink coconut palm sap before returning to the water, and the Mount of Fire, near which it is impossible to sail, there is a report of a crab-like creature that turns to stone upon being removed from the sea, and which provides an ointment useful for eye afflictions. They have reported, the text will sometimes read here, or a certain informant said. Not everything is given the unequivocal stamp of authenticity, and not everything is concerned with sailing the seas or the islands on it. The books report on India in everything from the method of slaughtering animals, that is, bashing them on the head, to the penalty for theft, which is, unfortunately, impalement backside first. Unless, of course, the accused chooses to endure a trial, such as plunging their hand into a cauldron of boiling water and retrieving the ring at the bottom. But it's not all slaughter and pain. There's also everything from average beard length, three cubits apparently, to bathing before the morning meal, and the common use of tooth sticks in cleaning. Readers would have learned of the varieties of sex workers, of the belief in transmigration of the soul, of funeral practices, of pyres of sandalwood, camphor, and saffron. They would have read of ascetics who wandered the jungles and hills, rarely mixing with others. The second book's writer mentioned those who never cut their nails and roamed about, asking food from those they visited. Food, which they took in a human skull made bowl, and which their providers thought a blessing to themselves to give them. The firsts reported having seen one, 
a man who went naked but for a scrap of lion or tiger skin, and who stood all day facing the sun. He claimed to have returned to the very same spot 16 years later and found the same man, still standing, still facing the sun. He expressed amazement that the ascetic's eyes had not been burned out by its heat. Then, at the end of the first book, the compiler reaches the end of their knowledge. The inland regions beyond China, they write, include those of Tagazgus and those of the Kakan of Tubat. These regions adjoin the land of the Turks. In the other direction, that of the ocean, are the islands of Al-Sila. There are a pale-skinned people who exchange gifts with the ruler of China. They maintain that if they do not keep up this exchange, rain will cease to fall on their land. None of our circle of informants has ever made it there and brought back a reliable report. In the land of Al-Sila, there are white hawks. The islands written of here, that home of white hawks and gift-giving people, that was actually Korea, but that was beyond the reach of the writer and his contemporaries, and it's beyond the reach of this episode, too. So after this break, we'll turn to focus more on China, and on the story there that's revealed within these two books, and in their differences. In book one, China features foods from peaches, pomegranates, and pistachios, to apricots, quinces, and figs. There are serpent melons, sugar canes, and service berries. There are cucumbers, coconuts, and almonds. The land features silk as a staple garment, and rice as a staple diet. Further used in producing wine, vinegar, jellies, and more. Book one shows us a, quote, more salubrious and finer land than India. Everywhere you go in China, they have a great walled city. Also, China is a healthier country, with fewer diseases and better air. It has, and again I am quoting from the text here, better looking people. There's a large stone tablet set up in public, into which is carved a list of illnesses, and next to each, its appropriate remedy. If a sick person can't afford that remedy, then it's paid for from the public treasury. And there are other forms of social support, too. Children of the poor are fed and taught to write at public expense. And citizens who reach the age of 80 go from paying a poll tax to receiving a pension. China, it seems, is a pretty bountiful place. But between the first and the second book, between around 850 and the early 10th century, a shadow had fallen over part of those lands and the ability of the Arab merchants to trade in them. Something had happened in China. Let's start with that well-organized land of the first book. Ninth century China, or that part of it we're concerned with in and around Guangzhou, is in book one a kind of merchant's paradise, with all considerations and conveniences accounted for. There's enough trade by Muslims to warrant an official appointee of the ruler to see to their business and disputes. There are freshwater rivers and valleys aplenty. There are everywhere guard posts and markets. There is systemization and a record of movements and of transactions. If you want to travel within China, you need two documents, one from the ruler, the other from the eunuch chief of finance. The first paper is a record of the traveler, their companions, their family, and forerunners. 
The second is a statement of their goods and money. As they move about the countryside, their possessions and wealth are tracked, and where they are left, spent, go missing or sold, there is a record. Where debts are incurred, they are documented, and the manner in which such things are to be handled is understood by all, as are their consequences. The author asserts that the Chinese act fairly where financial dealings or debts are concerned. There are clearly comprehensible rules and openly available avenues to pursue grievances, with substantial, well-understood punishments in place for those who break those rules. And there's even an example of all of this. There's an account of how, quote, the Chinese used to monitor their own system in the old days with a rigor unheard of elsewhere. They used to. There is a story of a merchant bringing goods to Guangzhou, and as the story goes, he was not what you would call an admirable man. He was avaricious in nature, and in his dealings with an imperial eunuch, pressed for a higher price, one beyond reason really, on the sale of certain ivory and other goods. But the merchant's greed wasn't the point. The point was that after the eunuch lost his patience and simply took what he wanted, our misbehaving merchant was able to travel to the Tang Dynasty's imperial capital at Chang'an, or as he called it, Kamdan, and from there he was able to lodge his official complaint and set into motion the procedure for resolving such matters. As policy dictated, the merchant was removed to a place of detention for two months, and at the end of that period, he was challenged. If your appeal is found to be groundless, he was informed, then the penalty will be death. After all, they couldn't have people just trotting forward empty grievances. However, having heard that, he could back out then and there, admit that he had nothing to complain about, with no hard feelings. He'd suffer only banishment and fifty blows of the stave. Or he could proceed. The merchant, who was, if disagreeable, also determined and quite certain of himself and the brightness of his cause, pressed on with his case. He was given an imperial audience, and then food and lodging, until the matter could be resolved. And then he waited, while the inquiry was carried out in Guangzhou, and while three separate military officers carried out their own independent investigations before presenting their findings. It was all a lot of trouble to go to, and you start to see why they'd first show you the possibility of death, and then offer you a beating and a quick exit, rather than go through with it. But our merchant did go through with it, and when the evidence came back, it supported his claims. The eunuch was promptly deprived of his property and station, and all was set right. It was all part of a larger depiction of reliable order, of laws administered in predictable fashion, of a place a trader from the Persian Gulf could do business with some peace of mind. But that was China in what Abu Zaid called the old days, that is, before its deterioration in the present time, that is, some sixty to ninety years earlier a time when maritime business still ran on an even keel. Since that time, the second book tells us, the trading voyages to China were abandoned, and the country itself was ruined, leaving all traces of its graces gone, and everything in utter disarray. But what could have gone so wrong? What had led to such total deterioration of law and order, and the end of those trading voyages from Saraf? What had gone wrong was the Huangchao Rebellion. Let's look at what Abu Zaid had to say about it. 
from the reports he had gathered, it had all begun with an outlaw, a smuggler, a rebel from outside the ruling dynasty. This Huang Chao had been involved in armed banditry and hooliganism, causing general mayhem and attracting a rabble of witless followers. In time, there were enough of those witless followers to make him truly strong, and his ambition even stronger. On one great city after another he marched, picking first one, then the next. He'd even drive the emperor from the capital at Chang'an, causing him to flee for Tibet. The emperor would send envoys for aid from a Turkic king, and only with his help would the Tang emperor find his way back to the throne and put an end to Huang Chao and his uprising. But when he regained that throne, he found he had not regained all that he had lost. From Abu Zaid's sources, we see the military leadership largely dead, the provinces overrun by warlords, the city sacked, the capital itself in ruins, and most importantly, from Abu Zaid's perspective, Guangzhou, the merchant's destination on the river near the sea, violently taken, its mulberry trees, so important for feeding the silkworms, cut down, and its people killed. He tells us of a lengthy siege and then a massacre, the Guangzhou Massacre, with Muslims, Christians, Jews, and Zoroastrians slaughtered to the number of 120,000. He tells us that the countryside after that was like the lands of the Persians after Alexander had killed Darius the Great and caused them to be divided among so many warlords. That after the rebellion, these warlords now conquered and consumed one another sometimes literally eating one another's people. And as for merchants coming from faraway lands, they found, unsurprisingly, that the reception was not so friendly as it had once been. Where well-organized dependability had once ruled the day, now injustice awaited. Traders and captains were harmed or slain, their goods taken by force. And God, Abu Zaid said, withdrew his blessings from the country so that the sea itself became uncooperative, and the ocean trade, once so fruitful, fell away. The trading port of Guangzhou had already had something of a checkered past. A corrupt governor would in turn be murdered by a Malayan captain. A variety of court appointees would take advantage of their geographical distance from that court to squeeze what they might from their foreign visitors. There was looting by corrupt officials, from senior eunuchs accumulating wealth and power on down to lesser functionaries lining their pockets. Even so, it was still in 748, described by a Buddhist monk as a busy host to many large ships from far afield, and brimming with spices, pearls, and jade piled up mountain high. Even so, the importance of the city for Arab and Persian merchants held. From a reported, though more recently questioned, caliphal embassy that was said to bring about the building of the Huaisheng Mosque in the early 7th century, through to our text period, it held. But it did not do so continuously. In 758, a raid carried out by some of those large ships saw its governor turned out, its warehouses looted, and its dwellings burned. That last part was not a completely uncommon occurrence. There's mention of fires in our text today. But after that 758 assault, the port was closed to commercial traffic from abroad and only opened again in the early 800s. By the time of the writing of our first book, 
Around the midnight century, it was doing a great trade again, welcoming Arabs, Persians, Sinhalese, Chams, and Malays. Then, as Abu Zaid told us, came the rebellion. Even if his numbers of 120,000 slaughtered foreigners are exaggerated, Huang Chao's uprising clearly devastated Guangzhou. But the city would recover. Trade between the Persian Gulf and China would recover. The Tang Dynasty, not so much. There had been other rebellions and other disasters before that, of course, notably the An Lushan Rebellion of the 8th century. But a weakened Tang, having responded poorly to flood, famine, and the rising power of competing warlords, would not regain its grasp after the defeat of Huang Chao. An earlier ally of the rebel leader, named Zhu Wen, would change allegiances and aid the emperor, only to later depose first him and then his son. That Zhu Wen would take for himself the name Emperor Taizu. He would bring an end to the Tang period, and a beginning to the one ominously known as that of five dynasties and ten kingdoms. For his part, Abu Zaid would only write of this, that China had remained in chaos down to his own times. This is what was meant by the idea that the second book was haunted by the knowledge that the good old days were over. That highly profitable trade between the Gulf and the cities of China would return. But as Abu Zaid wrote his commentary on the earlier work, as he made the additions of his age, it had not done so yet. And there was no way of knowing that it ever would. I'll end today's episode with Abu Zaid's own ending. Quote, this second book, then, is the best part of what my memory has been able to recollect at the time, given the wide range of accounts of the sea. I have avoided relating any of the sorts of accounts in which sailors exercise their powers of invention, but whose credibility would not stand up to scrutiny in other men's minds. I have also restricted myself to relating only the true contents of each account, and the shorter, the better and God it is who guides us as to what is correct. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, if you're on the Patreon feed with bonus endings, you'll be hearing that bonus in just a moment. Otherwise, I'll talk to you soon. Human Circus will return.